Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact or donate. If you will, would you go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review? It would help get this podcast out to more people. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please recommend it to your friends and your network. Today's guest is Brian Sanders. He's the founder of the Underground Network, which is an international fellowship of microchurch incubators, creating city-based ecosystems of faith, creativity, and empowered social enterprise. We have a fascinating conversation that you're sure to enjoy. So here's Brian. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. It's good to see you. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd love to start with your your journey towards missional living. Like, what does it look like to authentically live on mission with Jesus and in community? And what was your story like? Wow. Okay. So that's that's way that's a back. Big one. Yeah. Yeah. That's way way back. You know, I was I was a senior in college, and I read a book um, by a guy called Tom Sign, who who styled mm-hmm. himself a futurist. Um, I don't know if you. you heard of or remember him and he was just kind of this wild ideas guy and um i read a book by him called live it up and in it essentially made this argument of like christians could live together in intentional community he he actually had this this little model in the book where you almost like townhouses or something like a quadplex and you share a backyard and and something in that book struck me man that Mm -hmm. like you have, he said, like it's a Saturday morning and you've got four families, let's say, and four houses and four lawns. And so you have to get up on Saturday morning and four guys have to go outside and they have to spend two hours cutting their lawn, right? Yeah. And not only that, but you have to buy four lawnmowers, right? So he said, look, if you just shared one backyard, um, not only do you create community and overlap and stuff, but you save like whatever that is three quarters of the money towards or 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 you know three times the money it costs to buy four lawnmowers you buy one the one lawnmower and then and then whatever that is two hours times three guys that's six hours saved for the kingdom that could go be spent volunteering or doing evangelism whatever something about that just like stuck in my psyche forever and so when i left college i left with that idea of like i'm gonna i'm gonna do an intentional community I went to all my friends and said, let's do this. Let's, let's, let's buy a house together or let's get a big house in, in, in the inner city and let's live together. And not a single person took me up on it. They're like, oh, this is a great idea, dude. So I said, do you want will you do it with me? And they're like, no, I mean, I'm not going to do it with you. you know? <laughs> anyway, eventually I did find some people, partly because of the, the ministry I started doing it on the university campus and and so we slowly filled the two big houses in the inner city and it became clear to me that there's 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 ministry there's kind of a calling to a place that you can do you can parachute in you can learn the place you can build yeah. relationships there's nothing quite like you know incarnation inhabiting yeah. a place in the neighborhood and so even though for uh, the next maybe 10 years i was really called and vocationally involved in campus ministry I was also an inner city urban house homeowner, yeah. you know, so, so my commitment to just my neighborhood and my neighbors, we, we chose the highest crime neighborhood in Tampa. So we actually looked at a police grid and just said, okay, where's the most wow. violent crimes 
and we said that's where we're going to move. That's where that's where Jesus would move. <laughs> I actually think Jesus Jesus could live anywhere, but right. <laughs> um, but that was that was my start, man. That was my start in both incarnational ministry, urban mm. ministry. It's just being a person that lives on the block who's trying to like love your neighbors, engage people. But of course the issues and the problems in a neighborhood yeah. like that are somewhat different than maybe a suburban neighborhood would be. But it, but in many ways easier, it's easier to do ministry. It was easier to, you know, people just knock on your door yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and ask for help. That probably doesn't happen in suburban neighborhoods very yeah. often. No, anyway, it happens yeah. every, every once in a while it happens to us, but it doesn't happen very often. But we've cultivated a, a community within this neighborhood that it's okay. Um, people know we do, we do house church every week uh, in our house. And so people have, and during the pandemic, we were outside in our backyard um, meeting together. Um, and so people just know that we're kind of this household of peace in the neighborhood that they need something. How, how, long, how long did that take, Joshua? Like how long did it take before you think neighbors got it, that you were sort of? Oh, it took about a year or so. Um, okay. But it was in the pandemic and, you know, it was in COVID while we were doing it outside. Um, and so I think it took about a year outside and people just realized, hey, what are you doing? We had some neighbors show up um, and said, hey, we want to we want to be a part, see what you're doing, uh, be a part of this. Um, and so that's been been really good. It's been really fun. Um, but, man, it's hard to cultivate community here in America um, with your neighborhood um, because we're so dispersed. Um, and I mean, communal living in the middle of inner cities, that's probably where you could find something, you know, really <laughs> intentional that people could say, hey, hey, we have problems. Let's, let's just love on each other and try to take steps towards Jesus. What were the, what were the benefits of that living in that place? Well, you know, I lived in that neighborhood then for the next 20 years and raised my kids there and, um, it's interesting how, I guess, maybe in the early days you felt like you were making some sort of sacrifice for Jesus or, yeah. <laughs> you know, being being brave somehow. But um, And actually, we were, we were burglarized 13 times in the first year. <laughs> wow. But, but, you know, it's interesting because something happened after that 13th time. And, uh, and one of my neighbors just said, you know what, I know who did this. I'm going to go talk to him. Mm. And, and like, I, we, we were never touched again. Like something, wow. something like the neighborhood, it tested us, you know, needed yeah. to accept us. But, you know, I suppose every neighborhood, every context, every missionary field has cultural, you know, doors that you have to walk through, sort of, sort of hoops you need to jump through, things to, to build trust and credibility. And it wouldn't be different in a suburban neighborhood. There'd just be different expectations, different yeah different proofs of, of commitment that you have to make. But it was, it was, it, it, so it went from being something sacrificial and difficult and whatever you thought you were brave to something actually really beautiful. And at some point, maybe it's maybe three, four years in, you, we just made it, it felt like we made it this internal decision that actually we would not move. Like mm. we, we, we were, in, we enjoyed it. We just thought this is a better way. So it was predominantly a black community. So, um, one distinction between black and white kind of lifestyle is that white people like to um, have barbecues in their backyard. Right. <laughs> black people have barbecues in their front yard. And even something like as simple as that, you know, white people like to have yeah. fences and all their best stuff is in the back, you know, hidden, it's private, yeah. it's only for them. Uh, and black people, this is a generalization, but, you know, black people tend to yeah. put their, their cool stuff out front. So everybody, you know, if there's a barbecue, everybody can come by, everybody can have some. So, man, there are, there are things about that that I cherish, I treasure, I learned from. Mm. My kids were shaped by, you know, every, even even really needy contexts have assets, you know, yep. they have strengths. And to be able to maybe do a little bit of that asset mapping and recognizing, man, I'm stronger, I'm better, I'm improved because I'm a part of this community because I get to be yeah. part of this community. So of course, and also just the missionary life, you know, to my kids all, like we just we just came back from two years in Ireland and, and occasionally you see somebody, like in any big city, and we were in Dublin, you see someone who's homeless or 
struggling addiction or something like that transient and my kids just go up to them start talking to them my kids know how to interact with people like that because they were raised doing it so there's no there's no intimidation there's no fear there's no turn off because of certain behaviors or whatever they just they're just comfortable that i go inside a store come out and they're talking to some guy just sitting there so so where do you get that i mean you can't send kids to school for that you know so (laughs) it's a gift Yeah. yeah that is a that's a big gift what does that look like for us as parents as we are living on mission with our kids um and so where's that line i mean is there a line that we can't cross or is there you know something that we want to protect them from or do we are we just throwing them in uh the deep ends like we're in the deep right. ends yeah you're right and, so, and, and that is the probably the um tension we all feel as parents um a, a few years ago i read a book called the price of privilege it's really interesting because <laughs> the the um you know the coming out of the 70s you probably had this this parenting push dr spock and this yeah. idea that actually what's wrong with our kids is they don't have self-esteem you know self-belief that whole movement that like we just need to tell our kids that they're great and we love yeah. them and if, and if kids were loved if kids had security then the, everything would turn out all right that they would be great well that experiment that that hypothesis is is not turned out to be true so essentially you have the greatest mental health crisis in a generation probably in the history of Mm -hmm. humanity that we can you know that we can chart high higher levels of depression suicidal ideation self-harm all of these things in a generation which has come that which was told you can do anything you believe in you no sin narrative you know to them at all so anyway, this this one researcher in this book, The Price of Privilege, is basically saying, have we harmed our kids because we have made their lives too safe? I mean, essentially, we've we've kept them from challenge. We've kept yeah. them from difficulty. And now, obviously, you're not going to put your kids in harm's way, like serious harm. Yeah. But I wonder, you know, I wonder if 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 our kids would be better off in the long run if we did make their lives a little bit dangerous or at least simulate danger you know right <laughs> like it's not, it's not a real actual danger we know they won't be seriously harmed but but to put them in places where they feel a little unsure or they feel like they need they need to trust god or they need to trust yeah. us or they need to know that the world can be unpredictable but that's that is the that's the tension isn't it, man like mm-hmm. between putting our kids in simulated situations where they can grow and be challenged and yeah. see that the, the world does not always work yeah. it's not always you know yeah and i i mean i think that you know the the church in the west as a whole has done that quite well of protecting uh the body um and said hey stay here stay close you don't want to engage with with the other there's uh, there's sin and there's darkness and there's there's bad things out there so you got to stay here within the confines of the walls where you're safe um and so it's the same type of analogy as the you know as the church if we're not going out there if we're not risking if we're not actually doing what jesus did and actually changed the environment that he was in as he entered into the darkness or wherever he went he changed the environment um we're going to be in that same place and i think that you know the church has suffered because of it yeah you're right so it's not just our kids is it it's also no. we've also we've also like idolized safety yep. you know security yeah 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 and that's uh i mean that's definitely the u.s thing um you know and we're here did you as living in in ireland did you see anything different did living cross-culturally for a while uh, change uh, your perspective in any way yeah and of course you know our story fast forward from those early inner city days you know eventually we would we would before we started something called the underground network um we we went and lived in the slums of the philippines and that was probably the most formative Mm -hmm say year of my life you know because partly because we were um that's why we went (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. essentially essentially we were looking for the world church to to reorient us educate us we just thought you know if if we were to reshape the church into something different something that's maybe closer to our Mm -hmm. conscience 
you know, and a, a bias towards mission and a bias towards the poor. What would it look like? And um, we just thought maybe we weren't going to get that answer in the fishbowl, which is the American, you know, evangelical church. So we prayed and looked around, but eventually we settled on the Philippines, Manila, Philippines, and lived in Metro Manila um, as a team, as nine adults uh, and our our 10 kids at the time, uh, and went and lived in the slums and worked with these Filipino church planners who who whose mission was a church in every slum that was their wow. that was their big, big goal um and but what we said was just we we're here to reorient everything like a new operating system so mm. teach us about god teach us about family teach us about community teach us about evangelism teach us about about scripture like mm. everything was open and so it wasn't just a cultural education <clears throat> it was like a total reboot you know wow. theological sociological emotional um and something about being from Uh, the west yeah and doing that in asia because of course the east west dynamic cultural dynamic is probably i mean well it's one of two great dynamics in the globe right that two there's a there's a sort of ideological difference between east and west and then there's probably like a economic difference between north and south yep. and so to be in the global south and the east you sort of have this this collision mm. of both of those realities and so man it's probably too much to even enumerate how deeply that changed wow. me i mean i went in there like a very direct almost maybe even domineering kind of leader yeah um and i left i left being at least someone that was capable of communicating <laughs> in an indirect way mm. um, with a concern for the impact of my words in a totally different way. You know, Filipinos in Tagalog, they have a word, um, pakikisama, which, which just doesn't really have an exact correlation yeah. in English, but it's something to do with maybe like the, the, the uh, African word Ubuntu, like we, you and me are somehow together. We're somehow, mm-hmm. what happens to yeah. you happens to me, uh, koinonia, community, something like that. Um, and that shaped us. It, wow. it changed the way we thought about church, the way, what we would form <laughs> as church, but also just our own hearts, yeah. you know? Um, and of course there are stories like that about Ireland too. I mean, uh, I, I suppose every culture we go to that's outside of our um, the place we're from has the potential to really reveal God to us, you know, and mm. and also reveal our our lack of holiness or our need for growth in something. I think one of the one of the things that I think people need to to hear from that story is that you went to the Philippines as a learner, and you went to say, "Hey, teach us." Uh, and that's a humble thing to do. And, you know, I've you know, I've run a missions agency. I've lived in the Middle East and I've lived in South Korea. Um, I've seen a lot of people come and they're not learners, um, you know, from the West to the rest of the world. Um, and it's done some damage, especially if people are going short term. Um, you know, long term missionaries usually need to do some learning or else they're going to fail pretty quickly. Um, but short-termers don't usually learn much. Um, and so that's something that's really key, um, really important, that we also realize, I think, that we're part of a global body um, of Christ, that we don't have it all figured out in our little pocket of the world here. Um, and so we have to learn from one another. Like, you know, it says that we're all one. Like we're one body across all these different, you know, different variations of what the body looks like locally. Um, And so that's beautiful. How do we, how do we posture ourselves like that in just everyday life? Man, I was just thinking as you were talking there, I was just thinking, you know, it's not rocket science. It's, it's it's called, (laughs) it's called humility. So, um, and again, as, as a young American white male leader, I wasn't, you know, humility was not a, a virtue that we're taught or yep. that's, you know, idealized for us. Um, certainty, decisiveness, 
um, commanding presence, um, vision. You know, these are the things they told us make a good leader. Mm. Um, and in many ways, you know, I'm, I'm almost 50 now, and, and what probably what a life of trying to lead like that has taught me is that actually none of those things are good good yeah. qualities of a leader. <laughs> actually. Uh, I mean, decisiveness can be super dangerous. Um, like humility and, and asking the question, well, I mean, humility at one level is self forgetfulness. So it's just, it's just not about ego. And that already mm. is different from a Western leadership yep. paradigm. Um, but it's also, it's also thinking, you know, we always could be wrong. Um, so I have an idea. I want to do it. I'm going to try it. I'm going to walk in yep. faith, but you know, I could be wrong. And just holding that little bit of, of uncertainty essentially mm-hmm. not uncertainty in, in jesus or not uncertainty in the gospel yeah not uncertainty in the things which are unchangeable but uncertainty in myself in my mm. ability to understand or perceive or implement something that i think god's led me to do you know there's such a thing too bro as as organizational humility so it's not just that individuals yeah. can, can operate with that but but actually we can create uh organizational systems and and postures that are built into them essentially is this idea that we could be wrong and so um mm. we we have we have feedback loops you know yep. the tighter the quicker the better not just for adaptability or quick change but actually repentance to admit you know i, I don't think that was right i don't think that was the right thing to do mm. and as sooner you can discover that and then repent mm. uh, and of course as you said it yourself i, I think one of the three big the three main meta skills of the 21st century. One of them is learning. Yeah. So I would say there are there are there are three big huge ones which have changed from the 20th century to the 21st century, and one of them is can you learn? Um, so it's not about no already knowing. So if I want to hire somebody, I'm not yeah. saying do you already have this knowledge base that I need. That that's how we used to hire people. Now I'm saying can you learn what mm. you need to know, and how quickly can you learn, and how comfortable are you with learning? So, and learning is all about humility. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, what, the, what, what's behind learning is like, I don't know, and I, and I need to know more, and I could know more, and I'm curious, and that's what drives us in it. And without humility, not to mention the fact that it's a, it's a biblical virtue, right. <laughs> you know, which, which should be important to us for no other reason than that, but also it is a, like a functional skill. Um. I, I would say to kind of like be a, a leader that anyone's going to follow, you know, in the time we live. people just bravado is out, dude. Yeah, it is. That's so good. And we need that. We need that humility. It's, and, you know, as you said, within organizations, what is it, you know, as you were coming back from the Philippines, um, what did it look like for you really and others starting the underground network? And why, why that um, model? And uh, what did it look like for you as you're starting it? And... Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think the underground is probably at first was an attempt to maybe protest something, you know, say this isn't right or this isn't. We probably were a little bit. You know, we had a chip on our shoulders somewhat, <laughs> as you do when you're younger. Yeah. You know, although I was, I was, I was early 30s, so I wasn't, I wasn't um, a kid. You know, by any stretch, I did have some some ministry experience under my belt, but so, but I think that wore off pretty quickly, man. Like mm. to, to where you feel like, ah, oh, the church is wrong, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna fix yeah. it or change it. But I do think I do think in your early and mid thirties, you you come to a point in your life where you realize, you know, I'm a I'm a grown person, I'm an adult, yep. and if I don't agree with the way that the church that I'm a part of is run, I really fundamentally have reservations or concerns or disagreements. You recognize, well, then do it differently. Yeah. You know, you're. What's the problem? <laughs> you know, the the church is the most uh, empowered entity institution in the history of the human race. Like. You can you can be poor and uneducated and receive a call from God and the gifts to boot and to be equipped to be a leader in the kingdom to be a leader in the church. Yep. Um, like, if you think it should be different, don't complain about it. Do it differently. You know. So that was 
that is part of what drove us. And so then you're saying, okay, well, a bias for mission, a concern for the poor, empowerment, servant leadership. You know, if you if you if you really said, okay, th those things are not just going to be things we bolt on to our existing traditional church or inherited church forum, but we're going to actually just say those. Every single person has a calling. Every, every serious committed disciple has a calling into mission somewhere. Yeah. There must be a community that will come around them because other people are going to have that same calling. Yeah. Um, and then you end up thinking, okay, well, what are those things? So we, we say microchurches, that they're a small expression of the church. Yeah. And then how, do you, how would you network those together? How would you serve those? How would the kind of gathered version of the church serve the scattered version of the church? And so we just you just end up building a whole new ecclesial infrastructure yeah. for that those biases. And I in many ways that was easier. I see that now because of the work I do with with traditional churches to help them pivot towards some of this stuff. But in those days I I, I realize now it's easier actually to start yeah. from scratch. It's a lot easier. It is. <laughs> it's a lot easier, yeah, than it yeah. is to take an existing system and try to try to bring that kind of radical change um across all of its other systems so you know it's 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 complicated you know, we, you, you end up working on a new form of governance a yeah. new a, a new kind of staffing uh, a new way of doing budget and economic model um you know you have a, you, you're driven by values rather than vision there's no single leader that becomes critical to the system working um you know, it is ordination, things like that. Sacraments, they, they, they all take on kind of new new life when you have this belief in the priesthood of all believers. Yep. And, and um, you know, calling and empowerment and small church and network. Church has network. Um, so some of that stuff has become more mainstream now, more, yep. more common. Those words are more... Um, more in the in the in the nomenclature that we're currently using but at the time at the time those things felt innovative you know they yeah. felt fresher um and and it was the wild west you know we're just we're just trying to figure it out <laughs> but you know we had some smart people and some good some good hearts and and some some theological acumen so we were able i think to put together something which is a good case study or a good um kind of 1.0 yeah. For, for what it could look like. And, and I think people all over the world and all over the country are doing 2.0 and 3.0 of that now. Mm. And so what, you know, as people are doing 2.0 and 3.0, um, you know, there are some people that say, hey, this model has worked. Hey, it's worked in Tampa. I want to take it and plop it onto another place and see if it works somewhere else. Um, and, you know, I've often found that you know, as we are trying to ignite, uh, you know, a multiplication of micro churches around the world, all over the world, as our mission agency does, um, it looks different in different places um, that culturally it's going to be it's going to be different. So what are the essentials when you're looking at, at building, you know, the next iterations of that? What are the, the core things that we need to hold on to? What a great question. I have no idea. I, I think that, <laughs> I think that's, I think it's a moving target, man. I, <clears throat> so context. So you're a missionary guy. You get this. Yeah. Um, context is a very important word. Contextualization. Yep. Not just of the gospel, but of the way we engage, the way we incarnate, the use of language, whatever. <clears throat> the way we dress, the way we appropriate culture, whatever. But context has two components to it. One is place. We get that. You know, Ireland is a different context than, mm -hmm. you know, the Middle East, for example. Yep. Um, but there's also time. Time is part of context. So we all currently live in this time in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. So we're all dealing with the ubiquity of smartphones. And and so so context, it, it overlap. Those two things kind of overlap each other at some level. Mm -hmm. Although place may be different, the time in which we live is the same. But here's the thing. The underground, we started the underground in 2007. Well, that time is gone. Yeah. It's not 2007 anymore. In fact, I, I mean, you remember the TV show House? Did you ever watch the TV show yeah. House? Uh -huh. I think that show was like 2007. I, I watched an episode of that recently. And I was like, wow, the world has really changed. <laughs> <laughs> I just that, that, that show just did not age well, number wow. one. 
this mm. cantankerous man mm-hmm. who just abuses everyone, you know. So the show is not aged well. <laughs> but you just realize, man, the world has changed so much in that short period of time. <laughs> you know, two cycles of seven years, and it's almost indistinguishable the world that house you know lived yep. in and the world that we live in i mean that guy would have been fired so fast yep. and you know he would have been out of there nobody would have even liked him as a character i wouldn't think but <clears throat> so you know the same thing the, the even though there are mm. i'd say there are principles of small church empowerment there are values which are transcendent they they yep. come with us to every context and they come with us in every time right but even if you're in the same context, so even in Tampa Bay, yeah, I'm looking at our guys and saying, you know, what 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 worked for us 14 years ago, we we can't you can't live off that manna. You know, we've got to learn, we've got to continue to listen and change with our times and with our environment. I mean, who predicted COVID, or who would have predicted right. this this sort of bifurcation of these culture wars and political rifts that have gone on the racial the explosion of kind of racial tension um, in hmm. our time. I mean, even just in two years of being out of this country, man, I came back and I'm just like, wow, a lot has changed. Yeah. And the tension, the, the sort of corporate anxiety that, that exists in our in our country right now. It's just an extreme, yep. deep-seated anxiety, uh, which, of course, anxiety is either it's, it's both comes from fear and that it produces fear, which is that people are at their worst mm-hmm. when they're afraid. So, okay. So maybe there was a model or something to it and there's some, it was still something to learn from. It's probably a better model to emulate than something that was started in 1920. But, <laughs> <clears throat> but at the same time, we're, we're constantly learning. So I would mm-hmm. say there, there probably are a series of values. Like we have ours, which are, we have these 18 values is something we call the manifesto. Those things feel transcendent. They feel like they come with mm, us. Yeah. You know, no matter where you go. Yeah. Like Jesus, the poor, um, you know, the whole world, uh, zeal and contemplation, humility. That's one of our core values. Um, mm. You know, the lost. Those, those, you know, simplicity. Those, those things. They, they're meant to be transcendent. Yeah. They're, they're meant to be the kind of glue that holds us together as a community, across context across culture across time um but also they're they're a guide that or you know maybe like a lighthouse in the midst of i'm in a new culture and a new time and it feels like everything is up for grabs and i who knows what to do next but you know to do it with humility you know to focus on jesus christology should drive us you know that the lost and the poor are the, the primary concerns of the missionary you know you know that that you know um sharing and giving is a part of our value set, whatever. So those are the things probably that yeah. transcend. Well, I think you're, I think you're right. And I think that I, I know a lot of people were trying to, to move from, you know, having feedback on, on like numerical numbers to feedback on, on, are we living out our values um, and trying to reorient our, our constituents our even our donors to say, Hey, you know, our standard is, are we living by our values or not? Are we being faithful to what God has called us to do in the midst of things? He's actually the one that is going to produce the fruit um, and he's in charge of it. And we're in charge of being faithful in the midst of it. So what does it look like as a real, a real values driven network for you to, to have some feedback of how you're doing as a network? What a great question. Yeah. Because I mean, your numbers can can trick you. Right? Yeah. You know, so you you could have you could have a hundred baptisms in Texas, and not really be doing that good. You know, yeah. and and you could have two baptisms in uh, Dubai. You know, and be doing amazing. So, what is you know right. that isn't helpful. Those yeah. those and not to say baptisms aren't important. They're very important. But but I love your question because it's like, can you take your values, these sort of transcendent things, you say, no matter what yeah. happens, this is who we're meant to be. This is how we bear witness to this kingdom reign of Jesus, which has yeah. been promised to us. And then to audit that, you know, so one of the things, one of the practices, the disciplines that we would do is our whole kind of leadership community would come together once a year for like a weekend away. 
and we would pull out these 18 values and put them up on the board and we would do a like a community audit you know we would ask ourselves okay let, how are we doing and invariably you find that some are flagging you know some are drifting and that became a kind of point of emphasis in the coming year you know how do we, how do we shore these up how do we strengthen them so it's a, what a great insight that you just had there like to say instead of saying you know we never asked how many baptisms or how yeah. many even how many microchurches because we, we would have continued been growing every single year but that felt maybe secondary yeah to your point like are we who we set out to be and if we are we had this belief that growth would happen or that people lives would be touched or you know that we would bear witness to the kingdom um people would be empowered whatever um but but the harder question is are we who we set out to be and 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 always we weren't i mean always there because our if if you ever look at our manifesto it's really hard i mean it's aspirational right it's like nobody was living up to this (laughs) thing nobody um and certainly not us as a whole group a whole community so you get a couple of them you're like man we are just not Hmm. doing that we have lost focus on that and so that can become a, an area of emphasis or mm. or, or repentance even yeah. you know saying lord forgive us for um you know failing to to embody this mm. yeah you've you've uh, brought up repentance a few times and that so what's that importance of of repentance um and you know and you you just brought it up right now as like corporate repentance not just individual so is there a difference in between that individual repentance and corporate repentance and what's the importance yeah okay um right so repentance is a great and important word especially for the time in which we live because repentance is the sort of the it's the theological construct which is closest to the idea of change right adaptability um it's saying we 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 have this wrong and we need to pivot, you know, um, metanoia. We need to change our minds. Mm-hmm. We're going this direction. We need to go in the other direction. So repentance can be kind of sackcloth and ashes and regret and sorrow. And and sometimes often it is, right? Yep. But repentance can also be this more tactical, functional thing, which is you say, we thought this was the right thing to do, but it wasn't. You know, just we were just wrong. And mm-hmm. we met well, we tried, um, but that it wasn't right. It, it, and, and now we see that, Lord, and we're sorry. And, and we're not flogging ourselves. You know, we're still people who, who know that, that the grace of God is impenetrable, you know. So it's not about, um, I don't know, shame. Right. But, it's, but it, I, I think, and I think that's part of it is, is recognizing that repentance is this, this, this pathway towards the gifts of God, the, mm. the revelation of God, that, you know, it's his kindness that leads yeah. us to repentance, right? So it's actually, he loves us. That's why he's going to correct us. And we receive his correction as discipline, as a, as a gesture of love. But then, you know, I was just, just even thinking of Isaiah 6, you know, the, woe is me, you know, I, 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 I'm a, you know, he feels undone and he's like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I'm a man of sinful, I have sinful lips, words, whatever, but I dwell among the people. So who also mm-hmm. are sinners, you know, uh-huh. and, and recognizing both personal sin and repentance and change and also organizational, structural sin and the need for change and the need for repentance. And we do tend to vacillate. Uh, we yep. tend to sort of pendulum swing our view of sin tends to either be personal or structural. Um, and then our repentance is then therefore either personal mm. or structural. Yeah. Um, and we need both kinds of repentance, don't we? To, to yep. organizations to grow and to become healthier and to become more like the kingdom mm. and for our own hearts, you know, to continue to, to, to grow. We just shouldn't be afraid of it. In fact, it, there's a comfort in repentance, isn't there? Yeah. It's like, a, it's like, Oh, I, it just it just seems like a lot of work to 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 have to always be right. That's just <laughs> that's so much pressure. It's a burden we cannot yeah. carry. You know, <laughs> that's way too much pressure for me. Way too much I mean, pressure. Yeah, <laughs> I I you know just I personally feel that like 
just inside of me that I want to be right all the time, but basically because I want to please other people. I want them to see that I'm right. And so to have that pressure taken off of me um, is huge. And, you know, that's when Jesus says, you know, my burden is light. So my yoke is easy. So come. And he's going to start to steer me in the right direction, you know, with his, with his yoke. Um, and so that's so good that we have to, to stop, change directions. And the beauty in repentance means that we are not on that wrong path for a lot longer than we need to be on it. Like we're back on a better path and a better journey. Um, so I love that. Um, do you have any, uh, I want just a, a, a quick story or so of when you've actually seen uh, a kingdom of heaven touch earth um, in your sphere? What does that look like? What does it look like when the kingdom actually, we see some of that, the foretaste of the coming kingdom? Yeah, lots, lots of things come to mind. Um, I can remember being a... a young college staff worker person and um i was in a we did like a retreat or something and i was sitting on this balcony and all my all my small group leaders little missional community leaders that were going to be scattered all over campus were in little groups kind of on the first floor and i was young i was probably like 25 or something like that Um, and i remember just being overwhelmed uh, with the sense of like, oh, okay, this is actually what ministry is about. It's like seeing other people sent or other people empowered mm-hmm. and the, the the scaling, the multiplication of your, whatever you could yeah. have done is nothing compared to what all these people can do. Um, and the fact that I had played some part in convening them, you know, mm-hmm. bringing them together. And I've seen that over and over and over again in my own ministry life and, and to greater and greater degree, but it's always, it's always a, a variation of that sort of same theme. Now I'm working with the National Christian Foundation and helping to kind of um, convene what we what we call collective impact alliances around yeah. key causes, partic- particular social causes. Um, you know, foster care and adoption, human trafficking. Mm. You know, pro life. Um, you know, Christian community development. Um, church planting, whatever it is, convening yeah. these, these, these collaborations of everybody working in that sector. And what's cool is that every time I go into one of these cause sectors and start meeting the key players, <laughs> um, there's always underground people. <laughs> in fact, in fact, you'll see like key important ministries that um, are major players in foster care adoption or major players in anti-human trafficking. Mm. And they all started in the underground, wow. you know, so to be able to see the little sprinkling of, of us, of a small community that just said, let's empower people. Let's, let's yeah. back people. Let's serve people. And to see them get scattered, those ministries get started, incubated, wow. and then sent around the city and to see them leading now in those sectors, in those social struggles. Um, there's one. So on a, on a, on a more human level, I, I remember this one story of, um, the, the women that were working with um, uh, vulnerable women coming out of prostitution, one of the things they would do is go into clubs and build relationships with mm-hmm. these club owners, these, these yeah. like strip clubs. So they would do strip club outreach on the weekends and go in while the women are in there, go into their dressing room and give them gifts and pray for them. And like, basically say, look, if you ever want to get out of this life, whatever, you know, here's our card and, you just need yeah. to know us by name. And so one woman in particular was like, well, can, can I talk to you afterwards? So they're, they're out in the parking lot. It's like four in the morning. They're out in the parking lot waiting for her to come out. This is just a group of women, Christian women, you know, out in the outside of a strip club in the parking lot waiting for them to come out. And meanwhile, there's this, this car of two guys and they're kind of standing outside their car also waiting for the same woman to come out. So you have mm. these two guys in the car. It's very intimidating. Yeah. These like four or five women who are waiting and they're waiting for this wo- same woman to come out. So presumably you've got kind of one pathway after work and another pathway after yeah. work. Now beforehand they did, they, they did this sort of like little treasure hunt thing where they just pray and they think, okay, Lord, just give us something for somebody. 
Yeah. And one of one of the women had had um, thought, I think it's somebody's birthday. So they they felt like God was saying it's somebody's birthday. So they went and got a birthday cake and brought it with them to this outreach. Now it's four in the morning. No, it's not been anybody's birthday. Everyone they talk is it your birthday? No, is it your birthday? No. So <clears throat> finally, these two guys. The woman comes out. The two guys go over to her. These brave Christian women go over to her, and now there's like a sort of impasse, right? <laughs> and they, the the women are trying to talk these guys out of into leaving, right? And they they're not getting anywhere. And so eventually, one of them goes, "Wait, is it is it your birthday? Is it any of your birthdays? <laughs> Just in case, like it might be one of these men, these two men out in the parking lot, their birthday." And the one guy's faith just goes down. And he's kind of like quiet. He's looking at the ground and he goes, no, um, but today's my wife's birthday. Mm. And he said, how do you know that? And so she's like, oh, this cake is for your wife. <laughs> 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 and he gets the conviction of God just like hits this guy and his friend and his friend's like dude i this is this is too spooky this, we need to get out of here like this isn't right and so they 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 pray for this guy and he's like i gotta go home to my wife right now so something like that a moment where you see i mean if you talk about heaven and earth you talk yeah. about this dark place you know the the alley behind a strip club at 4 a.m in the morning where where something illicit is meant to take place yeah. that was the plan you know for this woman for these men uh, and something totally different happens. Wow. Yeah. He goes off to breakfast yeah. with them to hear about a way out and new life and hope in Jesus and forgiveness and all that. And these two guys get conviction. In fact, the one guy's like, this is, this God is after me. Like, I got to get out of here. I got to get home. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So it's big, that. it's big and it's little, isn't it? I mean, the, you can see the kingdom expressing itself in, in macro ways, but also in really yeah. micro and that's and that's beautiful and i love how you know these small you know micro communities these micro churches are empowering people and then you know through that and there's missional seeds and there's seeds for you know justice and the lost and and the poor and the marginalized going out from those communities that has a, a major impact and you know that you're actually seeping from the ground level you're transforming something from the inside out um and, you know, we often try to to go, you know, on the outside where there's there's a lot of behavioral issues. So let's just change behavior or change, you know, this or that. And it's going to work. But it's really a, any real true transformation comes from the inside out. Um, and so that's what I love about, you know, about the underground network and, you know, things like that of, you know, small, simple micro churches coming together to actually seed something totally new and different in the in the world yeah um just a couple questions at the end uh, one if you could go back to your 21 year old self what advice would you give <laughs> what a guy you ever wonder if you'd even be friends with your, your future version of yourself yeah i punch myself in the face probably uh Man, just listen more. I saw something on Facebook recently where it was like, what would you say to your younger self? And there was all these people posting like, I'd say you got this and don't listen to them and you're amazing and you're awesome. And I was just like, that is not what I would tell my 21-year-old. I would tell my 21-year-old self to shut up. That's probably what I would do. Like, you got a lot to learn. And uh, I, 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 I think humility has always been a, a yearning and a and, a, and a, a struggle a fight for me um and i maybe wish i would have gotten on it harder quicker faster um that commitment but just probably to listen more yeah. um to be slower to speak and yeah but at the same time i like that guy you know he he tried and he t he, he had he had zeal he you know he still yeah. does and, <laughs> and and he the best he knew to love people you know, and to, to pour himself out and to take chances. And so, you know, respect to the little guy, the yeah. year on your own. <laughs> <laughs> he set you on a journey. He set you on he a did. path, you know, so that's good. Uh, anything that you've been reading or watching lately that you could recommend? Uh, 
Yeah, well, I just read, I just finished, um, I read a lot, and I just uh, finished a book um, called Wanting, which is about, it's the work of a, of a guy called René Girard, who has mm-hmm. since died, I think, mimetic desire, you know, this really fascinating um, delving into his work that basically we want the things we want because we, because other people have it. We, we tend to copy people, which creates yeah. what he calls medic rivalry. So then we tend to feel hmm. kind of in competition with each other over the things we want. And then ultimately he says it creates scapegoating, you know, that hmm. someone must die to, to, um, to ease the tension and the violence that we feel between each other because we, we, we want the same things because we're rivals. We feel rivals. And so we, we tend to take people. It's really deep, deep stuff. Wow. I'm probably doing yeah. a poor job of explaining it. But essentially, then we take a person and they must suffer and die. They become the, the focal point of our of our outrage, our anger or something. And you just see that. It's hmm. just it's just an ac- epidemic right now. Yeah, so uncovering some of that stuff is kind of profound. So anyway, I, I would commend that book. I just finished it. So hmm. want is what it's called. Great. Um, do you yeah. have anything uh, coming out and uh, where can I do? Yeah, I do. Work? I do. I have a book. Um, I have a book um, which is actually available in pre-order now, but it'll be, a, I think it's, I think it's January 2nd or 3rd or something called the six seasons of calling. So essentially mm. what I, I have this theory about um, how calling evolves over the course of our lives and in, in, in somewhat similar ways that we tend to go through yeah. these six, six, identity crises over the course of our life and um and a lot of us form a similar kind of psychosocial developmental pathway and how calling intersects with these different phases of our lives you know Hmm. 0 to 12 12 to 24 24 to 36 36 to 48 these 12 year cycles or segments so Hmm. it's my it's my attempt at a at a kind of psychosocial developmental view of a whole life and how calling how our calling changes over the course of our lives. So mm. I think it's, I think it's really, um, at least it'll be thought provoking for people. And, and, and so far the, the impression that people have is that they really see themselves in the, that, that sort of common story. So people want to check it out. It'll be available in January. Yeah. Uh, the six seasons of calling. Is that right? Well, Brian, thank you so much uh, for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Thanks, Joshua. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we could see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, It really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.